Church fam, if you go ahead and take your seats this morning, turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, thanks again to the music team, always faithfully just serving us. We're going to talk about service in just a moment. I know they don't want any mention, but thank you nonetheless. Title of today's message as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 4 is Living as God's People in Light of the End. Living as God's People in Light of the End. We'll be in verses 7 through 11, 1 Peter 4. If you're taking notes today, you take away anything, the main idea would be the following. In the face of opposition, we live in a world that is broken and does not love and honor the God that we love and honor. And so there is therefore opposition. In the face of opposition, big God worshipers are to support one another through prayer, love, and service. Big God worshipers are to support one another through prayer, love, and service. Over the last few weeks, we've been drinking from two great streams, church, on one end, we've been encouraged to be the ministers of reconciliation that God designed for us to be. That as we read in a moment in First Peter, there are millions of people right now this moment who are living completely unaware and completely disinterested in the fact that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And what should that truth do to us but sober us. On the other end, part of the convincing witness that we have before a watching world is that the people of God are to be a loving people. Our pastor served us well looking at 1 Corinthians 13, even last Sunday, that our theology informs us to such a degree and such a depth that our fellowship together looks radically different than the rest of the world. And it looks radically different to the glory of God, amen? That is our hope and our prayer at least. Uh, this Sunday, I'm eager to see how these two streams meet in our text today. You and I, by God's grace, as we set out to be the loving stewards of the gospel we're called to be, there's one issue that needs addressing. And that is how we as God's people should act together when we face pressures from without. Those pressures exist and we will face them. Perhaps you're facing them today. It's one thing to know that in the end, God will judge. But in the meantime, how should the church operate while living in the midst of such dark days? Days that we can see like Romans 1. Individuals who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and elected to worship the creature rather than the creator. God has given them over to a debased mind. How should the church operate in the midst of said world? Let's be very honest and vulnerable about where this connects to us practically. Friends, you know this anecdotally, but when the heat gets turned up, there's something that happens and it can happen in this fellowship. When the heat gets turned up, the ugly has a way of rising to the surface, doesn't it? And that ugliness, unfortunately, can actually do something. It can actually diminish the corporate witness that we are to have before a watching world. 
It can actually hinder our ability. As Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, it hinders our ability to give an account for the hope that's within us. These pressures faced by the church can lead to a myriad of different things. It can lead to believers being possessed and consumed with perhaps despair before God. It can be a doorway for friction within the fellowship. It can be a petri dish of all sorts of sinful behavior to incubate and rule the day. And so to counter these natural tendencies which exist among a people that are sinful and in need of the grace of God, Peter now closes this section of 1 Peter. We're gonna parachute in verse seven. And I need you to know this is the close of a section that Peter began in chapter two, verse 11. And here's where we can begin to see why this text today, as we read it, it's gonna be so potent and so life altering relevant, not just to believers in the first century of Peter's day, but also to believers here at Northlake in 2023. And that is because it's precisely in the midst of suffering that the brothers and sisters in Christ to your left and to your right, they need the support of those brothers and sisters within the church family to not only encourage them to revere and fear Christ as they should, as Peter says, to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I need your encouragement every day to do just that. But I also need your encouragement to resist the urge to conform to sinful behavior in the face of social pressure. We're going to read in verses 1 through 6 just to get a running start to our text. And if you walk away with anything, it's for the fact that I need God and I need his people. Okay? Let's read verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready, ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Peter goes on to write, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So then in all things, 
Let me read that again, church. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever and all God's people said, amen. Amidst suffering, the church should be involved in three key activities in this task of supporting one another. It should be prayer, love, and service. I'll give you a heads up as we make our way through the text today. We're going to cover a little bit unconventional. We're going to cover our, cover our living what we learn section, the application, the import, the implications of this into the corporate life that is Northlake as we go. Okay. Number one, if you're taking notes, would be this. We observe that big God worshipers pray with a confidence that is bolstered by the clear forecast ahead. Big God worshipers pray with a confidence that is bolstered by the clear forecast ahead. Verse seven. You see, we pray confidently, knowing full well that God will bring about judgment on his enemies, but we also pray confidently that God will bring about the salvation of believers. And in worshiping a big God, we pray with confidence that is bolstered by this clear forecast ahead. Verse seven reads, the end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. It's so helpful as well as appropriate to be, for us to begin with the end. Because our passage this morning, it ends with a wonderful Phrase, really a doxology. Look down at verse 11. This will frame and fuel everything in front of us. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this doxology at the end ties up the whole section thus far in 1 Peter. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. What's the takeaway for you and I? Many of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism, right? The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the instruction within that statement is really fueled and shaped by this statement here in 1 Peter 4.11. This passage helps orient the direction of our lives correctly such that it's all about the glory of God, church. We are big God worshipers, amen? We have a high view of God and his word here at North Lake Bible Church. We live to exalt the one to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. The overriding aim of our living out our relationships, yes, in the world, as well as in the church, is that God would be glorified, yes, now, but we long for him to be glorified in eternity yet future. That is our aim. We are big God worshipers. This understanding is enormously refreshing as, as well as energizing. All of the instruction that you and I are about to unpack is held in focus here. The fact that we are big God worshipers. So every suitcase that we will unpack and open and lay out on the bed and examine the contents within, this doxology rests over every component of it. 
And with that in mind, let's start now again at the top of verse seven with this simple but profound statement. The end of all things is near. And you can hear the thud in the room as this letter was read to first Corinthian, first century Christians. There's an immediate link to the passage that precedes our own. Look back at verse five. Peter's just, just referenced God's final judgment in verse five. He's alluded to believers being raised to life like Jesus Christ in verse six. And so now he continues by reminding his readers that the end of all things is near, it's imminent, it's close at hand. Import being, do you live in that way? This is so typical for the apostle Peter, surprise, surprise, keeping believers focused on the future. And that focus on the future should no doubt radically shape their fellowship. It, it should affect the way that we live our own lives. And that focus on the future should not only enable us to cope with any opposition that comes our way and any persecution. And keep in mind, these are believers living under the rule and reign, earthly speaking, of chaotic, lunatic, God-hating Nero. It was not a pleasant time to be a follower of Jesus Christ or one of the way. This enabled them to cope with that persecution, to stand firm, which is a grand theme to the book of 1 Peter. But that focus should not only settle their feet, it should not only calm their hearts, it also should shape what their hands and their feet are always at the work of doing. You see, in the middle of a storm out at sea, it's good for us to receive news. Hey, guys, there's a clear forecast ahead. We celebrate it. We rejoice. We're, we're standing on the bow of the ship, elated over the fact that calm weather is on the horizon, but the crew on the ship still has to do something in the meantime. They still have to ride out the storm. And they're only going to do so well and confidently and faithfully if that crew works together. Similarly, it is with the church. Believers, we find ourselves, we live in a world that does not honor our Savior, Jesus Christ. It does not desire to. It, if anything, they are radically opposed. Their will is antithetical to God's will. And so we live in a world that's ruled by the prince of the power of the air. Their hearts are fixed on hating God and hating his divine purposes. And so when we find ourselves facing maybe opposition, social pressure, and maybe even persecution, whatever that may look like in the days to come, it's only as you and I, the people in this room, we devote ourselves to what? We work together and we pray and we love and we serve. And we ride out the storm with confidence and faithfulness. This is what Peter turns his attention to. He says, the end of all things is near. And here we go, it launches in. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for, and pay attention here, for the purpose of prayer. Now friends, the subject of prayer is not foreign to us in this letter. It's not foreign at all. You, if you look back at chapter three, verse seven, if you're acquainted with first Peter, you see that the inconsiderate husband actually does not have his prayers heard. 
You see in chapter three, verse 12, that the Lord's ears are open to the cries of the righteous. And both of those references demonstrate that it's not just the quantity of faith that's essential to an effective prayer life, but also the quality of one's life. This is now developed in verse seven. We have a world and an enemy that longs for us to pursue the idolatrous course that was ours before coming to Christ. Look back at the list in verses three through four. We're talking sensualities, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. They conspire against us to deflect and defeat us by stirring up these sinful desires. But to the extent that you and I live in light of God's final judgment, the end of all things is near. To the extent that we live in light of that, that we will all give an account to him who is ready at the door to judge the living and the dead, what happens? Despite the persecution, despite the opposition, despite the pressure, God enables us to see things clearly. He allows us to assess all situations around us soberly. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Keep watching. Keep your eye fixed on that day. Now, the implication of this to, for God through his word and through the apostle Peter, for him to implore us to be of sound spirit, a sober spirit and sound judgment. What's the implication of that? I'm not naturally being, I'm not inclined to be sober-minded and I'm not naturally inclined to be of sound judgment. It's not a new thing to first Peter. If you look back at chapter one, verse 13, Peter's already called them to arms. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely. Love that line on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Later, even after our text, chapter five, verse seven, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, you think Peter is perhaps speaking a little bit from painful experience here? Be of sober spirit. Did Peter ever have a moment in his life where he was not of sound judgment and sober spirit? In shame, Peter might have well remembered his own frailty and his own folly many times throughout his follower, following of Christ while on earth, most extensively at the Garden of Gethsemane. So imagine the, the power and potency of the, for, the, for Peter to, to hear now right, led by God's spirit, the end of all things is near. Why does Peter, led by God's spirit, why is he holding us out to them? So that they won't fall asleep. He doesn't want them to fall asleep. Said he wants them to understand the importance of the times that they live in. We have a savior and a judge who stands at the door ready to judge the living and the dead. People will give an account 
And when our minds are subject to Christ and when our minds are subject to his word and we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts every day that we do that, God enables us to see matters through an eternal perspective. Matters not what people are vying for in the realm of maybe sexuality, expressions of injustice on the earth, expressions of depravity even in our own country, the manifestation that God and his will is vehemently opposed to all that's bound up in the heart of sinful man. Peter says, be of sober spirit. And what does that sober spirit, what does that watchfulness lead to? Well, friends, it enables us to exhibit self-control. Self-control by not falling into our, our pre-Christian lifestyle, that, that list that we were marked by in verses three through four, or even that list you see in Ephesians chapter two, out of a desire to live holy, God-honoring lives, pleasing to him, a sober spirit enables sound judgment. I love this word here, sound judgment, it is heavy. It would have hit the table for those that read it. It means to be clear-minded, but not just that, to be clear-minded to the extent that you are under control. You are stable. You're, You're not carried away by an errant view of yourself. You're not carried away by undue emotion. You're not carried away by uncontrollable passions. You are of sound judgment. It's the opposite of what we've seen in James chapter one, right? The double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Be of sound judgment. For believers in that day, persecution was everywhere. They were spread out because of persecution. And when the church is faced with opposition and pressure and persecution, and that's a massive theme to the entire book of 1 Peter, you need to know that. As well as the pressure, not only just physical persecution, but just the pressure to conform. They malign you because you do not run headlong into the same excesses of dissipation that they participate in. You are mocked and scorned, you are shamed because you do not live as they do. It would be easy in that moment to despair. Living out your faith had challenges. It would be easy to want to give up. And so we need to be clear-minded just as they need to be clear-minded by keeping what in focus in our life, our eyes fixed on the end. You see, the end is those who persecute Christians They're going to be judged. The rest of the book of Revelation after chapter five, chapter six talks about they're literally gonna cry out for the rocks to fall on them for the day of the wrath of the lamb has come. They will hear the roar of the lion of Judah and they will weep in terror. God will make all things right. But he will also raise to life those who have followed him as Lord and Savior. Friends, by faith in the outcome of this gospel and its glorious end, you and I are able to see through all of this darkness that we live in. When you take this book and you set it in front of you at the start of every day, you have night vision goggles on. 
our world is dark. I'm able to see clearly. I'm able to see my savior. I'm able to see the whims of this world and what it is up to. I'm able to see the tactics of he who desires to thwart God's people. I'm sober spirit and I'm of sound judgment. And in such seeing, we are encouraged and we pray to God confidently that his eternal purposes will be carried out. The end of all things is near. There is a clear forecast ahead. Do not be dismayed. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, right? This lands on people who are of sober spirit and sound judgment. We have to ask just by way of pastoral encouragement, where does this fit into the corporate life that is represented here? And so I think I would offer that godly thinking Godly thinking and spiritual alertness are crucial to the purpose of prayer, Peter says. Why is that? Why is godly thinking and spiritual alertness, why is that crucial for the purpose of prayer? It's because sound judgment and a sober spirit develops a relationship where God is inclined to hear the cries of his children. You see, you and I cannot possibly pray properly if our minds are unstable due to worldly pursuits. We cannot pray properly if our minds are unstable due to an ignorance of divine truth. It cannot pray properly if we're indifferent to his purposes. Being of sober spirit and sound judgment, be these things for the purpose of prayer. You see clearly, you pray according to the will of God. You say, not thy will be done, but thy will be done. Prayer is the engine room for our church family. It enables us to function as we should amidst pressures that we face, these pressures that would otherwise cause us to collapse. We Need prayerful dependence upon God in all things. I was telling Drew this earlier. We were talking, we, we need a prayer. We need a prayerful dependence upon God just to love people in, in our fellowship that we may not deem very lovable, right? Our pastor talked about it last Sunday. There are people that just have quirks. We need a prayerful dependence upon God to love one another. We need a prayerful dependence upon God as we struggle not to grumble when we see all the inconveniences of those who perhaps have gathered in our home. The walls that are scratched, the floors, the floors that are dirtied, the elbows that are on the table. We need a prayerful dependence upon God as we seek to serve each other. Friends, let's have lives controlled and ordered in such a way, sober of spirit and sound judgment, that prayer becomes a clear priority of this local church, evidenced in the commitment for us to pray together. Not dismayed, not fraught with angst, clear-headed, clear-eyed, fixed on that which is to come in the end. This leads us to our second point this morning. And that is that big God worshipers stretch themselves in love for one another. Big God worshipers stretch themselves in love for one another. Verse eight, Peter writes, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another 
because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. No doubt at this point, Peter would have recalled the words of his Lord and Savior when Jesus reminded his followers and Peter included, he reminded them in Matthew 24, 12 that in the end when lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. In the end and as the end draws near, people's love for the Lord and for perhaps one another will grow cold. Now, knowing this, Peter now wants to encourage and stimulate love within his church. Peter would no doubt have been aware that persecution could lead to all sorts of divisions in the church. It could result in members judging each other when someone fails to remain faithful, and that happens. People stumble, and we are not fallible. We are not infallible, we are fallible. <laughs> And to rem remedy such a situation of judgment and scorn, Peter says we are to love each other earnestly or fervently. He's already mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 22. Look at it for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 22. He says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul, uh, souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, that word there fervently, is to be at full stretch. I want you to picture someone who is running at full gate. Now my gate will not be as long as Jim, Jim's, Jim's gate. His legs are longer, okay? No jokes, okay? This is the picture, a gazelle running with every ounce of his being, all exertion, legs stretched out to the max. He can't exert enough of himself in the quest of running and that is to be descriptive of our love. We stretch our legs out in the task to love as far as it possibly could go. This is to be the basic consistent attitude that the family of God represented in this room should show towards one another. And friends, it's exhibited in two different but complementary ways. One is to be a local church that is marked with forgiveness. Let me say that again. To be marked as a local church, the attribute of forgiveness. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Many of you can just even think back over maybe a little bit of time in your interactions with someone, even among God's people, and there is the need, the necessity to cover over sin. Armed with a loving attitude, outstretched as far as it possibly can go, we're prepared to do something, we're prepared to forgive. <laughs> we're prepared to overlook failings and faults, and there are many. Amen. Perhaps there will be Christians who have succumbed to the pressure of this world and some point in their life, they slip back into that lifestyle that was theirs before coming to Christ. And friends, rather than judging said brothers and sisters in Christ for their moral weakness, what is the church family to do? We are to love them at full stretch forgiving them 
and pleading with them and encouraging them to live more consistent lives. Not as a plate from a place of self-righteousness and perfection, but out of a place that I am a fellow sinner in need of the same grace of God as you are. And so forgiveness abounds in the fellowship that is North Lake Bible Church, but also is genuine God-honoring friendship. As Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I love the way it's put here because he could have just said, be hospitable to one another, period. That's not where he ends. And that's not where he ends because Wade Grubbs is inclined to complain and grumble. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? Be hospitable to one another. Love is also shown in the exercise of hospitality to one another. It would be very easy to misunderstand this verse since many of us think of hospitality as simply a social activity. But at this time in Peter's day, the, you have to be mindful that church gatherings would almost certainly have taken place where? within the homes of believers. And so not o- the exercise of hospitality was not only right and was not only good, it was also vital in order for the church family to have somewhere to meet. And so in this vein, such hospitality could not be limited to the invitation of just your friends or just those that were close to you or those that you got along with and those who shared your own personality and your own interests and your own quirks. No, this hospitality would need to include and welcome all people who might wish to gather together. Friends, this is painfully and wonderfully at the same time convicting and challenging, yes, for us as a church, but I'll be honest and start with myself. My wife leads the way in our home in this regard. Because I like to stay at home by myself. And our natural tendency, unfortunately, because of sin and unredeemed flesh within, is to grumble about people that we see as an invasion to our lives. Yeah, but they bring a mess. Their lives are disorderly. They bring dysfunction. They bring their sin and all the dysfunction that comes with it. My door is open. Come on in. And that door is open, especially to someone who has slipped morally. There's a book, I think it's by Welch, right? Relationships a mess worth making. Relationships are messy. Our love for each other should stretch sufficiently to welcome all into our home. Now the challenge for us as Christians is to show greater love, right? As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, excel still more. It's easy to love others who are genuinely fairly lovable. And yet so often our love stops there and we are unprepared to stretch further. There are unspoken limits that we set that that we dare not go beyond. We may withdraw or, or look down on those who have stumbled into sin and yet we set severe limits on how we use our own time and our own money 
and even our own homes. And what is the byproduct of those limitations? I need you to ask this of yourself. When we are not hospitable and therefore loving in this way, what is the byproduct of that? This refusal to love at full stretch leads to unfortunate consequences. The result is a cold-hearted, grumbling community, which is a tragedy of a church. Friends, this is where not only the gospel saves us, but it changes us. The gospel and everything that we sang about a moment ago motivates me to love God and love his people. We are a people who have been forgiven much, amen? We are a people who have been forgiven by Christ and therefore should extend forgiveness to others. We are a people who have been welcomed by Christ and should therefore welcome each other. If you want the greatest of all examples, you need look no further than the cross of Calvary itself. Christ stretched to the utter max. Why? In his love for sinners and the glory of his name. Our love should embody and emulate that same kind of outstretched quality. Friends, when we're motivated in this way, prayer and love, we're enabled to to do something else and do it well to the glory of God. We're enabled to serve. Which leads us to our third and final point this morning. We serve well to the glory of God. Big God worshipers. Big God worshipers revive weary believers by giving them a taste of God's goodness. Big God worshipers revive weary believers by giving them a taste of God's goodness. Friends, such reviving, the tasting of God's goodness, which we'll unpack in a moment, only takes place as believers represented in this room serve one another in word and deed. Look at verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, and it is special, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And then that end that we began with, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, having opened their home so such that the church family can meet, in that open home, they are then to use their gathering as a, as a means of serving each other, Peter says. God in his grace, and we know this even in 1 Corinthians, he's, he's given a variety of gifts to Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it, there are gifts that have been imparted to you, bequeathed to you, and you are but a steward while on this earth. Those gifts have been given you to you so that you might use those gifts not for your own self-promotion, but for the benefit of other people around you. We have received these gifts and we are to view ourselves as being the good stewards we are described as here in 1 Peter. Our role is to use those gifts in such a way 
to benefit not just some of the assembly, but the whole of the assembly. So I'm gonna encourage you, church, not to take the easy route and simply look out for your own interests. Take on the more arduous task of serving one another. You know what happens when that service is extended? God's grace is administered. It's tasted, it's enjoyed. God's people flourish and thrive because God's grace is flowing in and out of this fellowship to his glorious praise. Be honest, we have been doing this a long time. And by this, I mean towing in, unfolding chairs, setting up, running cable, turning on lights, getting classrooms ready, applying filters to the camera that make me look 20 pounds heavier than I am. <laughs> the baristas of Northlake and praise God for the baristas of Northlake. You've been doing it a really long time. You know what we will do? We will keep on doing it. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And as you serve and as you unfold chairs and as you set up and make coffee, as you teach children in Sunday school, know this, you are being a good steward of a special, special thing. You're being a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Manifold, that's a way to open your arms. I really can't contain and encapsulate in a word all that his grace is, it is simply manifold. And the aim of that faithful stewardship is to give other members of the household of God a taste of that grace in everything that you do. I want you to just pause for a moment. Like we think of North Lake and you're, we're already thinking of our corporate life. That is good and that's right to do so. But just for a moment, don't become detached from those that were originally reading this letter. You think living under the hostile reign of Emperor Nero and being on the run and dispersed abroad because of your faith, do you think you were in need of a taste of God's grace and goodness? You most assuredly were. Your lives were filled with a myriad of pressures. And I'll be honest with you, some of their pressures look different than our own, but there are a lot of commonalities. Some of them were having a hard time at work, chapter two, verse 18. Some of them had incredible difficulties at home, chapter three, verse one. Some of them were suffering for their faith, chapter three, verse 14. Some of them were even struggling to stand for Christ faithfully and in holiness amidst massive peer pressure. Chapter four, verse three through four. And feeling like the Christian life is tough and it often is being pilgrims on this side, it's easy to feel worn down and it's easy to feel ready to give in. This is why we routinely gather, isn't it? 
We gather for a myriad of things, one, because he is worthy that we read and sang of a moment ago. But God in his infinite wisdom has also designed the fellowship that is North Lake Bible Church to, means, to be a means of administering the grace that I need for the rest of the week. Just a measure of it. Through your encouragement, through your prayer, through small groups, and even through me hearing you sing is a blessing. All of us need a taste of God's goodness. This goodness is dispensed in a myriad of ways. To put simply, there are two listed here in verses 10 through 11. One is just through speaking. Some are given gifts of speaking. Peter says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And their role is to give people a taste of God's goodness through serving up a dish which contains what? This book, the word of God. We pray for our pastor, pray for him as he faithfully serves us in this role. We give people a taste of God's goodness through speaking this truth into their lives. We don't speak our own words. We speak the very utterances of God. My own words will not do. You did not come to hear my words and thankfully and rightfully so. My own words will not nourish the church. Your own words will not build up the flock. The sheep will only thrive on a diet containing the very words and utterances of God. So at North Lake, we have a high view of God. We're big God worshipers. We have a high view of this text. Church, this is of critical importance to us as the people of God in this way. Our family life, and that's what it is, a family. Our family life is to be filled with loving, loving, let me stress that, loving people who speak the truth of God's word into one another's lives. Let me say this in another way. Our family life is not marked by pharisaical, self-righteous, club-carrying believers. Up, oh, you've slipped in sin, bam, right? Up, you've morally failed. Up, let me drag you through the mud. No, I run beside that brother at full gate, loving at full stretch, wanting to see all men complete in Christ. Proclaiming the truth of God's word should mark our conversations. It should mark our times together. It should mark small group. It should mark the fellowship in the parking lot after service. And all of that is to come because we have a desire not only for the glory of God in his church, but I also desire the benefit of his people. I love you. I want you to thrive and flourish and run at full speed. And we're gonna take turns and trade off in need of encouragement to that end because running is hard. Some of us have been given the gift of speaking, some of you. Some have been gift, given the gift of serving. Look at verse 11. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In a contemporary setting, some, some people welcome others into this building. Other people offer musical gifts. Others make coffee. And yet the common feature in every realm of service 
is that every person should see their role as giving those attending the meeting a taste of God's goodness as they perform their acts of service. For this to happen, brothers and sisters, you and I will need to depend upon a great God to supply the strength, to supply the energy needed to keep on serving week in and week out. Why? So that God's name would be glorified. The end of all things is near. This is the very reason why this passage ends with a doxology. Regardless of the enormous pressure we face as believers, we come together in order to delight in God's goodness, his grace, as we await the return of a savior and he's coming back. And he will be that savior we read of in Revelation five a moment ago. And when we keep our eyes fixed on that day, our eyes are not fixed on our problems. It's not fit on our trials. It's not fixed on the pressures that we experience living in a broken planet. If it's fixed on God himself who is glorified among his people, that is our aim. I would just ask you this morning a very simple question. And that is, are you serving somewhere? Are you serving? If you are not serving, here's my encouragement. I want you to remember a name and maybe even write it down. Alejandro Mejia, okay? <laughs> or the staff of Northlake. There's a dynamic at this church that we celebrate that produces all sorts of challenges. For some God-honoring reason, people keep having children here at this church and they are multiplying. They are spilling out of the woodwork and they need people who love Jesus Christ, who will care for them and hold them and open up this book to them. So let me end with as I began, are you serving somewhere? Again, Alejandro Mejia, okay? If you are serving, thank you. Let's start there. If you are serving, thank you. I would ask you, is your serving shaped and tempered by this purpose? Is it shaped and tempered by this purpose? It's easy for us to use gifts, which God in his grace has entrusted to us. It's easy to use gifts for our own personal gratification or glory. Friends, we are experts at letting personal jealousies and empire building dominate our fellowship. This passage is a huge challenge to us to see how, how our gifts can be used not to serve myself, but to serve other people. And the implications of our failure to serve faithfully in this way is that by failing to serve or serving even in the wrong spirit or relying on your own energy, energy is that God's people miss out on tasting of his goodness. For you are not being the proper steward of the manifold grace of God that you were called to be. You are withholding. Let that sink in for a moment. This grace that he's designed to be extended. 
But if we are prepared to engage in this hard work of serving, whatever your gift may be, speaking or serving, if done humbly, and if done prayerfully, others around will receive the enormous blessing of being revived and being strengthened for the next stage of their journey that awaits them until the Lord comes, which is near. We pray, we love, and we serve. And what will we do next week? We will pray and love and serve some more. I was thinking this week, just a takeaway for us, there was a question that was, it was a bit haunting me here with, with chapter four, verse seven. I think just the question of why would Peter, why would Peter include teaching about how to respond to opposition and persecution? And why would he tuck it in the midst of his teaching about relationships within the church? How are they interconnected? Because the spirit of God, God does all things with purpose. There's a reason for this. Why our relationship with each other are woven into our call to stand firm in the midst of opposition and persecution. What is that purpose? And I think the answer may lie in the fact that an effective response to opposition and social pressure, a people standing firm to the glory of Jesus Christ, an effective response to opposition is intimately and intricately connected to the corporate life of God's people together. They go hand in hand. If I am gonna respond with faithfulness in a world that does not honor the same savior that I love, I will need people praying, loving and serving. That is the purpose of Peter, led by God's spirit, unpacking these relationships within the church and how they're so vital to you and I being faithful and standing firm. It's precisely in the midst of suffering that I need you most and that you need each other. I need your encouragement to revere Christ as I should. You're gonna have days even this week where perhaps you are not sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts as you ought. And you will have a friend in this fellowship who will bless you and be a good steward of the manifold of grace of God in your life. Some of you will be tempted to slip back into sin sensuality, lust, dissipation, drunkenness, abominable idolatries. And you will have a friend who will reach out to you, someone in your small group who will be a good steward of the manifold grace of God in your life. You and I have a, having a glory of God driven life compels us in this way. It aids us in responding to opposition rightly, and that is by God's infinitely wise design. If I just leave you with anything else this morning, I think I'm, I'm personally challenged to, to be a people that lives with urgency. But be honest with you, I, I don't always live out every week with this statement tattooed upon the frontal lobe of my brain, the end of all things is near. It probably can be said for a lot of us. Let's be a people that live under the reality that our savior is coming back. Amen. Are you grateful for that? He's coming back. And that means a great deal to us as a church. One, it means that the day of impending judgment awaits. 
And it also means in like fashion that I have a very limited opportunity to preach, proclaim, and display this gospel that saves. The end is near. Are you living that way? We can often say that is not the case. And we are in need of God's grace every day. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray as the music team comes and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we turn our attention to you. We're grateful for your word. Its instruction is often painful and it stings. It is a two-edged sword that from time after time, Lord, is wielded with surgical precision to, to metal and to get into the spaces of our life in which we need challenging. We thank you for your care for us. We thank you for your manifestation of grace, that you care for our, your people. You give them wise and discerning truth of which to live by. You give us principles. You give us admonitions of which to heed. And Lord, they're given to us because these, are, these things are not innate to us. We are in need of help. We need help to be the prayerful people you want us to be. We need help being the loving people you look to us to be. And we need help to be the people who serve relentlessly to your glory and praise. Father, where there is weariness in this room, perhaps there is a limp in someone's gate, would you encourage? Would you help them taste of God's goodness and may they experience wind in their sails to live out this week faithfully before you, for you are worthy. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.